Welcome to the Spectator's Economic Innovator of the Year Awards for 2022. I'm Martin van der Weer, Business Editor of The Spectator, and it's my pleasure for this podcast to introduce this year's regional finalists for the awards from Scotland and Northern Ireland. We invited four finalists from those regions to lunch with us in Edinburgh at a very fine restaurant called Dome in George Street, where they pitched their businesses to our distinguished panel of judges. So we'll be hearing from those four businesses. From Northern Ireland, we met Cardinal Analytics, which is a fintech big data business, MacReba in road surfacing, Roslyn Technologies in laboratory-made cultured meat, and Synaptech in manufacture of fault sensors for power networks. After each of them gives us a very brief pitch, you'll be hearing from our judges today who are Merrin Somerset Webb, editor-in-chief of Money Week magazine and Financial Times columnist, Irene McAleese of C-Sense, a Northern Ireland company which was one of the earliest winners of our awards, and representing our sponsor Investec today, our friends Michelle White and Arlene Ewing. So you'll hear their views on each of the pitches. So let's hear first from Cardinal Analytics. I guess Cardinal Analytics, really very dry and quite boring to most people, but it's quite necessary. And it's quantitative finance, specifically how to predict when companies go bankrupt. The 2007-8 crisis really showed that there's a lot of investors out there who are meant to be quite savvy, quite good, and they didn't really see a lot of this coming. People see this as a very boring subject, very esoteric, and they don't really consider thinking about it and generating new models and trying to assist in predicting default risk. So that's really what Cardinal exists to do, to try to predict default risk. Whose spokesman was Mark Fletcher. So this is FinTech and its big data statistical analysis. This is a group of statisticians in Northern Ireland who've got together and created a business which is predicting bankruptcies, essentially, predicting corporate bankruptcies by taking a large number of variables. They started with 2,000 variables that could possibly be measured in corporate performance, reduced them to 60 variables which give strong signals, and from that they claim to be able to predict the risk of bank high risk of bankruptcy 12 months ahead with a high degree of accuracy. I think he said over 90% accuracy. This is somewhat better than traditional rating systems like Moody's and Standards and Poor's. It's less subjective than human analysis as is carried on by many investment institutions and so on. So it's selling a product to quant funds, to hedge funds. It's going to be selling a product to Bloomberg terminal users. It's one for all of our financiers to have an opinion on. So let's start with Arlene. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. I think I like this one. I like the fact that he was not involved, nor the team involved in finance, and that they came from the backgrounds that they did. 
I thought over 90% of predictions being correct ahead of any potential default risk was again a good number. I do wish that he touched on a bit more about behavioural finance and uh, bias reporting etc by I, I guess the people that he's, he's selling the product to. So yeah I suppose I was really intrigued to know that was, he was selling it as a subscription through um, the portal at Bloomberg and if you think around what firms pay for our, our pricing screens etc and different types of mechanisms that are very similar to this, um, that, that was quite interesting. It's a, a big revenue earner. Michelle? I agree with all those points. I suppose just a couple of extra ones. Obviously, the financial industry is huge in the UK and globally, so the, the market for this is almost unquantifiable, I think. But the thing that struck me that would be the most useful thing to their buyers was that, obviously, there's a number of ways that people predict bankruptcies, if you put this into simple terms. But usually that comes very late, you know, and you're predicting something a day before it happens, which is not very useful to anyone. Whereas they're actually building this, achieving those high levels of accuracy, like you've all said, to predict these bankruptcies and problems and defaults up to 12 months ahead of time. So that is something that definitely hasn't been done before and is super valuable. So I can see the, the scope for this. Erin? It was a fascinating presentation. It was incredibly compelling. And the, uh, the idea that you can get a higher degree of accuracy over potential defaults over a 12-month period is obviously going to be worth an awful lot to large parts of the financial industry. But it is still relatively new. And I know they've done a lot of backtesting, but we know that backtesting is not forward testing. So there's uh, still a lot there to prove. And we've also, I think probably all of us, had experience of um, excellent quantitative statistical models not doing quite what they are supposed to do in times of, of crisis. So you know, it would be wonderful if this had been around back in. Uh, 2007, 8, 9, then we could have really seen if it worked. But we, I think we're going to find that out possibly over the next uh, few years as well. Irene, this is a bit in your field again, isn't it? You're an analyst of big data yourself. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating that they talked about taking 2,000 different variables and then working back from there, looking at the signals that come out of those variables and looking at the patterns that emerge. It's a completely different approach to, you know, I guess how we described it's traditionally done. So that was fascinating. I also thought it was just kind of funny that he started his presentation with apologising for presenting on such a boring subject as quantitative finance, <laughs> only to find out that everyone was really fascinated with what he, he had to say. So um, yeah, I thought it was a really fascinating approach and I'll be really excited to see how it performs on Bloomberg's app portal, which I understand it's launching on soon. There we are. So that's Cardinal Analytics. We did observe that the clients who are buying this are, are the kind of quant funds that are either short selling aggressively in some cases or high frequency traders anyway they're some of the people that do some of the stuff that you know some commentators don't approve of much but on the other hand if they buy this product they'll do it more efficiently so we can admire the product without having to pass judgment on the on what the customers are doing with it if you see what I mean the next one we heard from was called Mac Rebour represented by Toby McCartney and this is a business which recycles waste plastic into a polymer substance that can be mixed with bitumen for road making. Roads are made of stone mixed with bitumen which is a carbon fuel product essentially by mixing plastics into it. It reduces use of carbon fuel. It addresses the what Toby called the plastic epidemic huge volumes of plastic waste in the world. It improves road networks and it reduces the 
CO2 element in, in road building. They're, they're already doing business in 33 countries. They have a three million pound turnover. They're in places like Bahrain and Turkey and so on. And it was a very persuasive presentation, I thought. The idea for what we do came about in 2015 and I was uh, attending my little girl's school assembly when she was six at the time and the school assembly was based around what lives in our oceans. The teacher said to the kids, so children, what lives in our oceans? Anyway, my little girl's turn, she put her hand up and when the teacher said what lives in our oceans, my little girl said, plastics. But when I was questioning my little girl after the assembly, she said that she'd worked out that by the time she were to reach my age, so I was 40 then, it's expected that there'll be more plastics in our oceans than fish themselves. And I had one of those dad or parent moments where I thought, I'd like to do something about it. So also in my area, I'm from um, Dumfries and Galloway, near to Lockerbie, and the roads are shot to bits. They're, they're full of potholes. No one has a, a really nice car because it's, it's going to get wrecked. I remembered something I'd seen in India. These people were employed as pickers and they would go to landfill sites. They would pick out various different things that they could recycle and turn into something new. And anyway, these pickers were picking out bits of plastic and they were taking it and putting it into a pothole. They poured diesel all over it, they lit it, and all the plastic would melt to form a seal in the hole. So I thought, well, they, that's a great idea. How innovative is that? Merrin, what did you think? I thought it was absolutely fascinating and uh, incredibly compelling. I particularly loved the way he introduced us to us when he explained that he had taken piles of plastic, chucked it into potholes, set, set fire to it with diesel, and then seen how brilliantly that patched up roads. And I was hoping he might send me a large bale of plastic and some diesel so I could do the same on our road. But you know, any, any solution like this is such a simple idea very straightforward, it's cheaper than the traditional method. So it's an environmental method of doing something that badly needs doing uh, that is also cheaper than the, the method we currently use. So that's fascinating. The other thing that really stood out for me from what he said, and also actually another one of the entrants mentioned something else, which is that their main battle in the UK is against regulatory paralysis. So these are markets that are incredibly highly regulated in terms of the products they can use, and that's their main battle in the West. It seems to, you know, for us, talking to him seems like an absolute given that everybody should use his product, but that's not quite the way it works. Yes, so the developed world is a much more difficult market than the developing world yeah. for him. Irene, what did you think? Oh, I thought they were a fascinating company. And what's great is that they, you know, in terms of innovation, they started in 2016 from their garage in Lockerbie. They've gone out onto Cedars and crowdfunded raised 7.1 million from the crowd to help grow their business with this innovative idea. I think which has really captured the imagination of lots of people around potholes are such a issue. And you can see how they've been able to mobilize that energy that people have to invest in their business. People are motivated by you know the environmental footprint, but then on the other side, for the, the councils and others that are needing to, to purchase this stuff, fundamentally, their product is cheaper than doing it the old well, way. I love the idea that basically that the, their raw materials are free because for the councils, they have negative value if they end up in land tip, et cetera. So he can get the raw material full free from any council. Yeah. Fantastic. What yeah. a great starting point for business. Exactly. Very uh, good. Thank you. And Arlene? Absolutely. As Mary says, starting quite free. I like the fact that it was in 35 other countries prior to the UK. I thought that was super 
when I asked him at the end to the let me see and feel and touch what was in the test tube, what was the, the plastic waste disposal, etc. I mean, it literally was plastic bags and, and bottles that had been crushed and micro-crushed, which actually, thinking about how that all goes in, it just fills a pothole, which, again, against backdrop of regulatory issues and cost, and how many councils around the UK particularly have to pay road users for tyre repair, you know, vehicle repair, given potholes that are in our roads today. So I thought it was super. And they've tested that the materials are safe yes, as well, exactly. and, and don't skid and all those sort of things And it's not just potholes, well. right? It is roads as roads a whole. You build whole roads with them. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, material. wonderful. That's a good summary of that one. So it's. It's potholes, it's entire road systems, but it's also addressing the issue of plastics in the oceans. So, Roslyn Technologies, a university spin-out here in Edinburgh, Ernst van Orso, the chief executive, came to talk to us. This is very advanced bioscience cultivated meat, starting with cells and multiplying the cells, adding in other ingredients and creating the possibility of products that are exactly like meat, but they have benefits in terms of animal welfare and the environmental footprint. This is clearly potentially a multi-multi-billion dollar industry if consumers will ad adopt the product and if the enormous vested interests in the meat industry around the world are prepared to adopt it and accommodate it. So this is a kind of very futurist business. We heard about Dolly the sheep as a, a very first example of stem cell technology and animal breeding and so on. So we are at the forefront, in my view, of one of the most consequential changes in our food system. So cultivated meat is meat grown directly from animal cells in a bioreactor without the need to raise animals. The promise of this technology is massive. It can eradicate animal welfare issues, it can improve human health, and it can reduce the environmental footprint of food production, in particular for meat. To make this cultivated meat, you need to start with the best ingredients as in any recipe, and those are the cells. And that is where we as Rossen Technologies comes in, because we are the first to take high quality animal stem cells and make that available to, uh, to the globe for cultivated meat production. We want to create here a lab in Scotland make small vials this size and become basically the foundation of sausages in the US, burgers here in the UK, dumplings in Asia or lamb kebabs in the Middle East. It doesn't matter what you want to make out of it. We just can do that with a couple of cells we create here in Edinburgh. It's quite hard to get your head round, I found, but, but what did we all think? Now let's start with Michelle on this one. Fascinating, Martin. As you say, I was particularly struck when and started talking about the, the doubling of the cells every tw 24 hours, I think he said. So mm. he sort of talk, talked up the number of cells. I think after 20 days, we had enough cells to fill a, a bottle of one and a half litres of water or something. After 40 days, enough cells to fill a swimming pool, which mm. sort of blew our minds, I think. So in terms of the scale of this and how quickly they could create just a colossal amount of cultivated meat to replace animals that otherwise take months and years to rear was um, quite staggering. So yeah, for me, fascinating, hits all of the, the sustainability notes and um, lots of challenges, I'm sure, along the way. He talked about this is probably not commercial until 2030, 
I think. But it's it's going to be a very interesting journey between now and then. But they do have revenue streams. They're selling the cell technology. They're not going to manufacture the product themselves. So they're in the early phase of commercialization. Merin, how was it for you, this one? Well, they're, I mean, they're the kind of company, they, they're effectively the same as the kind of uh, companies that sell yogurt starters and that kind of thing, and yeasts and uh, starters for cheese, et cetera. They, they provide the, the, the sort of software for the hardware. You see what I mean? I think that's what they do. I like the idea, in theory. And I'm, I'm impressed by the technology. I'm impressed by how far they've got. I'm interested to hear that he thinks it's only 10 years until they have an affordable profit because it's been phenomenally expensive up till now. I'm interested mostly in how the consumer will feel about it. And it's been very interesting to watch how companies such as uh, Beyond Meat and that kind of thing have found the take up for their products not as big and enthusiastic as they would have expected. It's a different product, obviously, because it's a type of vegetarian processed pretend meat as opposed to a bio-identical lab-grown meat. So it's a very different product, but there is a big consumer barrier when it comes to eating something that is considered to be artificial, lab-grown. So I think that, that will be the, the, the biggest barrier. But if they can overcome that one, the idea that you can create a bio-identical meat that involves very little environmental impact and no animal suffering should be a sort of global game-changer. Mm. Uh, it just depends on whether that yeah. actually happens and the role they end up playing in that game-changer. And as a source of protein that humans need, he, he pointed out, for example, the fantastic inefficiency of organic vegetable farming as a source of, you know, alternative food source. So the world does need protein. This is one way to, to manufacture it on a large scale. Irene, what did you think? So I think he, he talked about the need for it to be safe, affordable, nutritious in order to make this scale. It's got to have the, the cost has to be brought right down from where it is currently. And that's the goal in the next seven years. So there is a long path to get there. I see they've already, they started with 10 million seed capital and they're looking to raise another 20 million in this year. So it's a, it's a significant chunk of funds to, to go on that path. But they are already commercialising. They are working to generate revenue, which is exciting. And they've taken a path where they're not competing with these brands that are out there. They're trying to... Uh, I guess, provide the smarts and the clever part and, and help other manufacturers adopt this technology and grow. So I'm, I'm really genuinely fascinated to see where this goes. And I feel kind of excited a little bit to have been in the room today to hear that pitch and think, you know, where, where will this go? I think we, we focused a lot in, in our podcast here and in the meeting actually with, with Ernst on the potential take up of this product in the developed world, in the UK obviously specifically because we're sat here, but one of their very honourable objectives, if you like, is to tackle the, the world's hunger problem. And if we think about the sort of UN sustainable goals and hunger being one of their main focuses, providing cultivated protein in perhaps developing parts of the world where it's otherwise difficult to rear and develop and provide meat naturally, is obviously a huge thing that this, this company is trying to tackle. So that's a business with a really important scientific niche in a future industry, but we don't know where that industry is going to go. Extraordinary story. So our fourth entrant for today was Synaptech, represented by Saul Matthews. And this is back in heavy industry, as it were. It's to do with principally to do with power generation. A very interesting 
business built on the fact that there used to be a small number of very large sources of electricity generation, big power stations, and a national grid, and it was controlled centrally and so on. Now there are a very large number of smaller electricity generating points, whether they're wind farms, hydro, whatever they are, even solar panels on roofs. And there's a need for a lot more control of, of distant assets. So what Synaptec is doing is producing monitoring devices which connect with fiber optic networks that are already in existence to act as sensors for anything that could be going wrong anywhere in these networks. It is making use of existing structures in terms of fiber optic, but it doesn't need big buildings, it doesn't need big control rooms. It comes back to the laptop of the guy controlling it. It was early adopted early on by Scottish Power and SSE. It's clearly a growing business, and it's an aspect most of us hadn't thought of, that if you have lots of different sources of power, which feels like a good thing, you create a whole new problem, which is it's much more difficult to control than a network which consists of a small number of very big sources of power. So we're repurposing this legacy infrastructure that was designed 100 years ago for the future, but we're not allowed to massively change it. It's very difficult to, to make a change to that infrastructure because it's a highly regulated industry. And so we came along and said, well, clearly what you fundamentally need is a lot more control, a lot more visibility of all these remote and distant assets, like an offshore wind farm could be 150 miles off of the coast and you need to know what's going on and if there's a fault or a problem, you need to catch it instantaneously, limit damage or even ideally predict that fault and see it coming to avoid colossal outages and costs. And there's this rapid decarbonisation of the generation of power coupled with, as you can imagine, a massive decentralisation integration of renewable power, the change in how it's supplied and the change in how we demand power. What the power companies do today is manually inspect things. You know, they might send up drones or helicopters or go out in a jeep and have a look around. Mm. You'll probably see one of these assets once every two years. You're not going to catch a problem on that visit. It just, the, the odds are so horrifically against you. But if you can keep an eyeball on things permanently with a low footprint and low cost and see what's going on and notice those trends and problems, you've just got more time to make smarter decisions and the, the data is new because the sensors and the locations are new. Irene, what did you think? say they're the world's only passive sensor network uh, technology for this uh, high voltage power system monitoring. Really fascinating to hear how it's developed, that they're using this fiber optic cable to be able to, to monitor. Um, I had asked about that. It is more expensive, obviously, to uh, deploy fiber optic cables and to use other means of communication. However, um, he was able to explain that th this fiber optic cable is pretty much ubiquitous, it's everywhere, and they're really just tapping into the existing network, which is there, which makes it very cost effective. So I thought it was uh, a really innovative way to tackle that problem. Marion, how did you assess that one? This was one of the ones that I found most compelling, actually, because it's a bit like the recycling plastic into rose, rose one. It, it helps address a very immediate, very obvious problem. And, and the way he described what we've done to our energy infrastructure, you know, we've talked a lot over the last couple of months about the way that we might have, have slightly overstretched ourselves with the en energy transition, moved a little bit too fast towards renewable without, without creating the infrastructure that makes it work. And this is exactly what he's talking about. We've created all these you know, 80,000 odd different energy transition points that are coming into a grid that was designed to work with 20 
odd energy uh, creation points. So there's this big problem, and he provides a, a sort of almost immediate, relatively inexpensive solution to help managing what has become an incredibly complicated grid. So I found that very compelling, and assuming that it works, and I can only assume it does because uh, he says it does and he showed us the box, it sounds like a, a business that will really, really do well. Michelle? Another interesting business, I was sort of drawing some parallels with one of the businesses we met, and it was the looking at the sensors on the oil rigs actually, sort of tackling similar parts of the power and energy crisis that we're facing today. I thought that one of the particular interesting things was, you know, any company that is re revenue generating from day one certainly gets a pat on the back, I would say, and the fact that they were able to sell what could have otherwise been looked at as unproven technology to those big Scottish power companies from day one shows that they're obviously onto a good idea here. And then interestingly, when we sort of probed on what is the size of this market, their estimate being that the power companies that would be their customers are currently spending perhaps up to three billion pounds per annum trying to monitor these things that their sensors can come in and do in a much more cost-effective, efficient way. Looks like um, they're certainly onto something from my perspective. So that's it for this round from Edinburgh. Do join us again when we'll hear from finalists in London, Leeds and Manchester. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.